I'm Dr. Janelle Anderson, former college professor turned manager in a large corporation turned entrepreneur. And not just any entrepreneur. I've made it my life's work to make organizational life more effective and fulfilling. So welcome to Working Conversations, the podcast where we digest and translate research and ideas on workplace dynamics and serve up to you the most interesting and actionable strategies to make your workplace conversations and your relationships more effective, productive, and influential. If you're looking for proven tools for your workplace toolbox, you're in the right place. Now, let's get after it. Well, hello there, and welcome to the very first episode of the Working Conversations podcast. On this episode, we're talking about telling your career story and the importance of telling a powerful, masterful story that outlines your career to date and holds together in a compelling way. There are so many examples of when you tell your career story. One of the most obvious ones, of course, is at a job interview. But there are so many other opportunities to tell your career story. For example, anytime you meet someone new, the question is bound to come up, so what do you do for a living? Or what do you do when you're not at the soccer field watching your kid play soccer? Or whatever the con- current context is. Even to those you know well who maybe don't know about all the career decisions that you've made, sometimes you're telling your kids about your career path or even their friends. They might be asking questions about like, why did you become a lawyer? Or how did you decide to start a landscaping business? Or what's it really like to be a firefighter? There are so many different contexts in which that career question and that career story can come up. And there are so many fascinating careers out there. In fact, if you haven't already been regularly asking people that you newly meet or um, you know, even maybe neighbors that you've lived next to for a long time. In fact, one of my neighbors is a forensic accountant. I didn't even know that was a thing until I met her. Her accounting firm investigates white collar crime. Isn't that fascinating? Okay, so also fascinating is how you tell your career story. At least it can be and it should be if it isn't already. So make sure you hang around to the end after you've heard my career story. And at the end of the podcast, I will give you the step-by-step formula of how to craft your career story so that it is compelling and engaging and powerful and masterful. Now, of course, you have to have a plot that is the foundation setting that's going to move along following some sort of a logical sequence. And again, I'll give you all the keys to doing this at the end of the podcast after I've shared my career story. There has to be some drama along the way, and sometimes it's a few dramatic different moments in time in your career. You know, those inflection points where you decided to take another job, or you decided to risk a promotion, or something like that. And then, of course, you're going to come up with some resolution at the end that's going to bring us up to speed on where you are right now. And it's going to make absolute sense. Based on all the twists and turns in the plot, it's going to make absolute sense that you would end up exactly where you are right now now. Now, if you're not telling it that way, it might feel disjointed. It might feel like a bunch of twists and turns and things that don't hang together. But no, you are going to craft it so that it makes sense. Absolute sense. All right, are you ready? Here is my career story. Well, if you don't know this about me, I was born and raised in Minnesota, in rural Minnesota. I grew up on a lake out in the country, seven miles from the closest town. When it came time to go to college, I went to college 
in Boston. I wanted to experience a different part of the country and really live somewhere that was very, very different than rural Minnesota. Now, if you asked me why I went to college in Boston, I would tell you specifically that I went to Boston University because of their communication program. They have a fantastic college of communication and I went there to study communication. Now, also, if you'd asked me why I wanted to study communication, I might tell you a story about a time when I was about nine or 10 years old and I was sitting at the family dinner table and there were literally five different conversations going on. I have two older brothers and both my parents and all five of us were talking about different things. And it occurred to me that nobody was listening to one another in that conversation. And I spoke up and I said, hey, this is not a conversation. We are not listening to each other. We are not answering one another. And it was in that moment, that was my first glimpse into communication as a thing and listening as an activity that we do to one another, do with one another to engage in creating meaning together. So that's part of my story about why I studied communication in college. Along the way, uh, in my senior year of college, and I had various jobs all throughout college, but my senior year of college, I was a server at Pizzeria Uno right in Kenmore Square in the heart of Boston, which is right down the street from Fenway Park. And so during baseball season, our restaurant was so busy. I was slinging beers and pizza, and I got to be an excellent server. I could remember an order of a table of 10 without writing a single thing down, their appetizers, their main courses, their drinks. And in fact, sometimes people would say to me like, are you not going to write any of this down? And I would just point to my noggin and I say, I got it all up here. I'm happy to report that on a couple of occasions, I did bet the tip double or nothing to my table that I could remember everything without writing a single thing down. Man, I scored some amazing tips because I developed a good memory as, as a server. After that job, and I was in that job through graduation from college, I graduated in a terrible recession. And so I stayed on at Pizzeria Uno uh, for a couple of months after graduation until I landed my very first professional role. Sometimes I leave this piece out, but because I want you to know the whole story, I'm telling you this piece today. I was only in that job for about, I don't know, eight or nine months. I was the sales assistant to the director of sales at the Boston Phoenix. Now the Boston Phoenix was a weekly entertainment newspaper. It doesn't exist anymore. Um, It went the way that many weekly entertainment newspapers did in the digital age. It uh, died a slow death and is no longer with us. But not just the direct, I was not just the sales assistant to the director of sales at the whole Boston Phoenix. I was the sales assistant to the director of sales at a very specific division, the division that handled the back page, which is where the personal ads were. And in fact, the Boston Phoenix had franchised the idea of the personal ads in the back of paper uh, of the weekly entertainment newspapers across the country and for the very first time was hooking them up with the internet. So hooking them up with uh, with some of the very first bulletin boards where people could go online and uh, through CompuServe and, and services like that to, uh, to to meet people online. It was, you know, a radical bleeding edge industry at the time. Now, I don't always tell people that I worked in the personals, but again, I'm telling you the 
whole story. So yes, I worked in the personals as a sales assistant to the director of sales for the personal pages for the back page of the Boston Phoenix and many other entertainment weekly newspapers all around the country. Um, It didn't pay very well because it was part of a newspaper. And if you didn't know this already, jobs in newspapers don't pay very well. So I was, and I was still living in Boston. In fact, I was living in a studio apartment in Back Bay in Boston, which was probably one of the most expensive places to live short of like New York or San Francisco at the time. In fact, it probably still is one of the most expensive places to live. And I needed more money. So I, even though I loved my job there at the Boston Phoenix, working the personal pages in the back of the newspaper, I was desperate to get a different job. And in fact, uh, one of the jobs I applied for, my one of my colleagues at the Boston Phoenix was very instrumental in me getting this job, although he didn't know it at the time. I was answering an ad, um, again, a newspaper ad. This is how far back that goes. I was answering a newspaper ad for a trainer at a startup company that built telecom systems for hospitals. Now, the in the job description, it said that it would be helpful if I knew Unix because their system was built on Unix. Now, I didn't know what the heck Unix was. Unix is a computer operating system. And so I asked the, the guy who handled all the computers at the Boston Phoenix, who I had become friends with, I asked him a little bit to tell me a little bit about Unix and did we use that there? And he explained, no, we didn't use that there. And, that it was, and he explained just enough of Unix that I was able to put in my cover letter that I was familiar with with Unix. And anyway, I ended up getting hired into that role in part because I wrote that I had some working familiarity with Unix. Now they did ask me in the job interview what I knew about Unix. And I told them exactly what I knew about Unix, no more, no less. (laughs) And anyway, I landed that role and I was the very first trainer brought on to that company that again, built customized telecom systems for hospitals and everything was incredibly customized. I'll talk more about that in a second. But first I want to point out that our company was venture capital funded. And the VCs always wanted to see a higher return on their investment than they were getting. And so that directly impacted our leadership. I saw in my, well, not that many short time, I mean, I was there for a few years, but I saw lots of different leadership styles at those senior levels of leadership in that company. Uh, One time we had somebody in who was very good natured and really drove the culture and and it made it for a wonderful place to work. Everybody really, really loved working there. And in fact, I will tell you this too, this one of the founders was in that CEO and president role when I started there. But those VCs, those venture capitalists wanted to see uh, what we kind of chidedly referred to as gray hair management in the you know, around the office. That's kind of how we referred to it when they when the, the venture capitalists brought in the first actual CEO of the company that came from outside. And again, that first CEO really led the culture and he was a great guy to work for. We all loved him, but he couldn't drive the bottom line. So they brought in somebody else who could drive the bottom line, but was a complete jerk and sent the culture into the trash. And Round and round it went. I, uh, I often described it as uh, seeing a revolving door of leadership. And so I saw lots of different leadership styles and communication styles. And, and in fact, that caused me to ask myself some big questions because I always joke, you know, what do mid- Midwestern girls with big questions, what do we do? We go to grad school. So I had some questions about leadership and communication that really prompted me to want to go to grad school. Now, also, 
recall that I said I was a trainer in this job. And so I would go out into the field training the hospital staff on their new uh, phone system that was integrating the phones and the pagers and all the directory information and so forth in the hospital into one system for the very first time. And uh, back in the day, some of the people who were, especially the people who were who were operating the phones on the front desk, thought this system was going to come in and take their jobs away. And so part of what I had to do was reassure them that they were absolutely still critically needed in their role, but they were just getting some new equipment to use to do the same things. And it was going to speed up their work and make it easier for them and faster for them. And um, so part of it was really helping them change their mindset and overcome some fear that they had about computers. Again, some of these people really hadn't used computers at all before that. Now, along the way, one of the other things that happened when I was out in the field doing that training work, remember I said that this startup built customized systems. Well, since every system was customized, that of course invited room for errors. So I was always coming back from a training trip out into the field and bringing the software engineers a laundry list of mistakes in the user interface. For example, the database field would maybe be 15 characters, but the on-screen field would be 25 characters. So to the user, it looked like the cursor would get stuck about three quarters of the way across the field when they were typing, but really there was no more room in the database field. So I would come back again with this laundry list of these issues on the regular. And more often than not, the software engineers would brush me off, reminding me that their top priority was the operating system. Because if the operating system crashed and the phones in the hospital went down, patients' lives were literally on the line. And after one particularly frustrating implementation in which the hospital name was spelled incorrectly, and I could do nothing about it in the field, I came back to the office seriously questioning whether I could continue to work there. I felt like my integrity was on the line every single time I was in the field. And I told the senior engineering manager, hey, I can't do that ever again. And as I see it, there are two options. One, you fix the errors in the software, or two, I quit. And then I hastily threw in a third, absolutely preposterous option. Or three, you show me how to fix the errors in the user interface myself. Lo and behold, much to my surprise, That senior engineer looked at his colleague and said, I don't know, Janelle's pretty sharp. I think maybe we should let her into the code. (laughs) And so they did. And so over the course of the next few months, I learned the user interface layer of the code so I could go in and tidy up all those errors and user interface issues on my own. Now, as I mentioned, I was curious about what made for that leadership communication to work in some cases, not work in other cases. Um, And I loved seeing people learn and I wanted to continue to learn about leadership and organizational communication. And so that is in fact what led me to grad school. So first I pursued a master's degree and I stayed right there in Boston and I worked on my master's degree while I was still doing some consulting. I officially quit my job, but that tech that tech startup, that telecom company really wanted to keep me on. And uh, I always kind of joke, I made a little bit of a deal with the devil. Uh, They wanted me to work more hours than I wanted to work. If I worked 30 hours a week, I got paid $30 an hour. If I dropped to less than 30 hours a week, I got paid $20 an hour. So there was a very strong incentive for me to work more hours while I was in grad school and really kind of hang in there as part of the company. And I did that throughout most of my master's degree. Again, studying organizational communication in Boston. I did my master's degree at Emerson College, which only has degrees in communication. You can't go there to study math. You can go there to 
study filmmaking or uh, how to be a journalist or anything in the communication field, but that is their specialty. As I was I was working on my master's degree, I got an opportunity to teach an undergraduate course for the very first time. And in doing so, I was teaching public speaking and I realized absolutely I want to do this teaching thing. So I continued on and I pursued my PhD at Purdue University, which is in West Lafayette, Indiana. I did not actually live in West Lafayette, lived in Indianapolis and uh, commuted up to West Lafayette. I wanted to live in a larger city and uh, Indianapolis had more restaurants, culture, entertainment and so forth. And anyway, that's a little bit beside the point, maybe not, but I include it just for uh, kind of fully developing who, who I was as a graduate student. I had my first child while I was in grad school. I was close to the end of my coursework when my son Andrew was born. And I then was desperate to find a dissertation project because as uh, as a new mother and somebody who had finished most of her coursework, I just really wanted to get this whole thing over with, quite frankly. Um, I enjoyed learning, but I wanted to move on with my life. I was ready for the next stage of like settling down into, into a job as a professor. Um, I found a dissertation project somewhat incidentally. Uh, I had always had a, a, you know, an interest in technology. Obviously, working for that tech startup, you could see my interest in technology and user interface design. And in fact, while I was at Purdue, I had to take a few courses outside my major, and I took those in human factors and user interface design. So I had that under my belt as well. And as I was looking for uh, that dissertation project, it kind of landed in my lap. And it was an opportunity to study a virtual organization that included four different geographic locations, uh, two in the United States, one in England. Uh, actually, to, to take that back, there was five sites, two in the United States, one in Canada, one in the United Kingdom, and one in Australia. And so I was perhaps a bit ahead of my time and uh, wrote my dissertation in the year 2000, so uh, just over 20 years ago, and defended it in early 2001. So defended it about 20 years ago from now. And, um, and, and again, a bit ahead of my time studying virtual team communication. That led quite nicely into my first role as a faculty member where I was hired at the University of Minnesota to lead a program in a, a technical communication department that had students at multiple campuses. And we were using uh, video conference technology to connect those campuses. And again, very primitive compared to what we have these days. It was a dedicated line connecting various campuses. And so faculty members would need to teach their courses in this special classroom that had a, a direct link to the other uh, to the other campuses around the state. Now, not all of our faculty members wanted to teach using the technology. Can you imagine some of the older uh, older professors who wanted, who were maybe very close to retirement who wanted nothing to do with the technology? I stepped into that role where 25% of my uh, role was an administrative assignment where I was running this program and, you know, begging these faculty members, coercing them if I could to be teaching in that virtual classroom. Oh, some of them absolutely hated it. And some of them absolutely loved it and found it fascinating and fun like I did. Um, while I was a faculty member at the University of Minnesota, I would get the opportunity 
really through, and here's where proximity comes into play. The College of Continuing Education was just down the hallway from where my department was. And they would field calls from people all across the state who needed an expert in this, that, or the other thing. And anytime it had anything to do with communication, leadership, team building, that sort of thing, it would come to my department. And my department chair would send it my way because I was one of the only, one of the few people on the faculty at that time who'd had some corporate experience before academic experience. And so she would field me these opportunities. I didn't know how to price anything, but I sure knew how to put together a good curriculum that absolutely hit the nail on the head as it related to what people in the working world need to know. Because I mean, I was teaching leadership, team building, organizational communication, management communication, all those kinds of classes, which I mean, quite frankly, the average college sophomore can't use that information right away, but the working professional can absolutely use that information. So every time I taught one of those workshops, I thought, man, these are my people. This is absolutely my true calling. How do I make this my real life? Well, one day I was actually on, um, I was on a spa weekend by myself and I met some other people. Um, I had climbed into the hot tub on a Friday night after just getting to the, getting to the spa and, um, the two women who were in the hot tub were clearly knew each other quite well. And one of them uh, said, you know, introduce yourself and or I guess they both introduced themselves and and asked me a little bit about myself. And they said, you know, what do you you know, do you work outside the home? Do you have a job? And I said, you know, are you a parent? And I said, yeah, yeah I have a I have a young son. And um, yeah, I'm a, on the faculty at the University of Minnesota. These two women, I kid you not, they looked at each other and they burst out laughing. Now, I was thinking to myself, that's not really funny and it wasn't meant as a joke but then when they stopped laughing they explained oh the reason they were laughing was because they too well at this point they used to be faculty members at the University of Minnesota so one was a human they were both epidemiologists one was a human epidemiologist and the other one was an animal epidemiologist and they had started their own epidemiology consulting firm and which I found fascinating and through the throughout the rest of the weekend it really um opened my eyes to the opportunity for me to create my own consulting firm where I got to teach workshops to, again, my real people instead of college sophomores. And so that whole rest of the weekend, I was just fascinated with this idea of starting my own business and what would that look like and so forth. And as as that really fell together over the course of the next few months, at least my, my vision of my company became very, very clear. What occurred to me was there's a gap. I've worked in a small company. I've worked in a large academic organization, but I never worked in a large non-academic organization. I never worked for a large company. And I thought, you know, I imagine some of my clients will be people who work in really large organizations, and I got to know what that's like. So I left academia very specifically seeking out a role in a large company, and I ended up working at Thomson Reuters. Now, I initially thought I would find a job in human resources, in organizational design or organizational development, something like that. But honestly, I over and over and over applied for those jobs. And I really think that my resume was landing on people's desks and they were going like, a professor, what do we do with that? I don't think so. Then I had to dig deep and say, well, okay, what else can I do? Because I really, at this point, I really wanted out of academia. I really wanted to work for a large company for a couple of years before I started my own business. And so I looked back through my skill set and I said, well, what else can I do? Well, this was like 2005, 2006, usability and user interface uh, engineering was hot, hot, hot. It was brand new and fresh. I mean, it's still hot now, but it was brand new and fresh right, right back then. And so I landed myself a role at Thomson Reuters, first as a manager and then moved into a director role. 
uh, directing a group of a, a team of people who did user interface design and usability work on international projects. Now, there's one little piece I forgot to tell you about my time at the University of Minnesota. And that, in fact, is one of the pieces that set me up so nicely for landing this role at Thomson Reuters. When I was on the faculty at the University of Minnesota, a strange and funny thing happened. One of my colleagues, I remember I said I worked across, I, I ran a program that was across multiple campuses. One of my colleagues at the uh, one of the other campuses saw a posting for creating May term study abroad programs. So taking students for a month to a different country to learn about something specific and a custom, you know, a customized three, four week course. And she wanted to take students to France to study technical communication. She was fluent in French, and so she and I, and, and she knew she was not at the Twin Cities campus, and I was at the Twin Cities campus, and uh, she knew that somebody had to be from the Twin Cities campus. So she said, let's put this together, to you know, together, the two of us. And so we wrote up this great proposal for a tech comm class in France, um, which then promptly got rejected because, as it turns out, we didn't know this at the time, but people from the regional campuses weren't allowed to participate in that program. But they said, we like the proposal. Can Janelle, can you do it? And I don't speak a lick of French. Um, I know that fauchette is the word for fork, and I think I might be able to say the word cheese. And that's about it. And so, uh, you know, I could fauchette and fromage. That's about all I know in French. And so they said, well, that won't do. We need to have somebody who is fluent in the language. But they said, well, where else could you do this? And I said, well, with a few modifications, I could, which would actually make the class better, I could do this class in Ireland. I could do this class in Dublin. We could do the class on international and global communication and, uh, you know, smuggle in a little bit of usability and product design and, and so forth into the, into the class. And so for two years, I took groups of students to Ireland to, to study abroad during May term. And uh, in fact, the second year that I was there, while I was there, the study abroad office sent me an email and they said, Janelle, you know, we love having you teach abroad, but next year there we have an application for somebody to teach Irish literature in Dublin, and we only send one program to each country at a time. So is there somewhere else that you might want to uh, take students? In fact, students love to go to London. Can you come up with a, a class that you could do in London? And in fact, I, as soon as the class was finished that I was teaching in Ireland, I was going to London for a week's holiday, as they say in England and abroad. Uh, so I was going for a week's vacation, as we say here in the United States, in London. And so I said, you know, let me look around and see if I can't think of something. And so, of course, London is rich with amazing museums, the Victoria and Albert Museum, um, the British Museum, so many, so many amazing museums. And so I thought, what about museum communication? Museum exhibits have to be exquisitely and expertly crafted. The communication that, uh, that goes along with the exhibit needs to speak to such a range of different people. And so I thought, wouldn't it be fascinating to study museum communication specifically. And so the third year, I took students to London for a month to study museum communication. Anyway, that becomes very relevant because part of how I landed my role at Thomson Reuters was, of course, because I had that global experience, because I was leading a global team that did user experience design on products, not the flagship product, there was a separate team that did that. But we did uh, products in Japan, products in China, products in Australia, uh, London, really all over the world. It was very much a global team. Again, that is part of what led me to landing in that job. 
Then I had planned on being in that job for about two years. I sort of thought of it as my on-the-job MBA. I needed to learn how to run a pro- uh, how to you know run a team, um, and my team was very autonomous. I needed to learn how to read a profit and loss statement, and um, you know, and really understand working in a large organization. And I thought, okay, that'll take me about two years, and you know, two years is a decent amount of time to stick with a job. And So as my, but I I loved what I was doing. And like I said, I got to travel to Beijing. I was in London all the time. I was in New York so much. I had my favorite restaurants in New York. We did work on some domestic products as well. Um, and, uh, And so I got to do just an amazing amount of fun travel, Switzerland, I mean, you name it. And, uh, and so after two years, I found I was still there. And after three years, I found I was still there. And after four years, I found I was still there. And the little voice on my shoulder that kept tapping me and going, hey, you were only going to be here for two years, was growing louder and louder and louder. And just before my fifth anniversary, there was a very serendipitous opportunity for me to leave the organization to start my own company. There was some reorganization going on, and I was able to put my name in and uh, and literally ask to be laid off. My initial ask to be laid off off was rejected and um but later i somebody circled by a, a senior leader in the organization very senior to me circled by my desk uh, uh quite some time later and said hey i heard that one time you asked to be laid off i've got some really tough decisions ahead of me is that still the case and i said i am willing to go and so i was fortunate enough to get a severance package right at the time i was ready to leave anyway it was so serendipitous but again You know, these things all kind of line up and happen for a reason. Well, perhaps it's a little bit glib to say things happen for a reason. In fact, if you look back on the choices that I made up until this point, I had created the surface area for this kind of luck to appear. Let's leave it at that. Now, that was 11 years ago when I struck out on my own and built my business to where I get to serve clients just like you every day. And as I built my business, I figured out the whole world of being an entrepreneur. I got certified as a coach. I added keynote speeches to my business. I added corporate training and consulting into the mix. And most recently, I've started offering online courses where individuals can take courses from me directly. And that came about because people that I was delivering courses to in corporate settings would ask like, hey, you know, my spouse or my best friend or whomever would really love to take this class on difficult conversations or communicating strategically or any number of the classes I teach. In fact, I teach some classes on related to virtual communication, virtual team building and so forth. And of course, since the pandemic hit, that's become a very hot topic and I'm doing a ton of corporate training in that space. But people were asking me, how can we take courses from you directly? And so I started offering online courses recently so individuals can take those classes from me directly. Now every single day is different and wonderful and I wouldn't have it any other way. And that is my career story. Now it takes many different twists and turns. I could very easily have made this career story sound disjointed and by accident rather than by design. I mean seriously. Somebody who worked up in a startup, then was a professor, then held a corporate job where she was a director and is now an entrepreneur? I mean, that's like four different careers. But you see, I don't tell it that way. I tell it in a way that makes absolute sense and that each career move logically led to the next. In crafting your career story, it is absolutely your job to make your career sound completely by design and not at all by accident. Now, let's break it down step by step 
and I'll explain the process right after a word from our sponsor. This episode is made possible by Instacart. If you haven't already started using Instacart, now is the time, my friend. Now, I'm the first one to say that I actually enjoy a trip to the grocery store. I really do. But you know what I like doing even better? Making this podcast. When I was deep in the development of this podcast, outlining and recording the first few episodes, my kids reminded me that they needed to eat. Instacart to the rescue. In absolutely record time, Magnolia, my Instacart shopper that day, delivered chicken nuggets, milk, avocados, fresh berries, and a host of other groceries we needed. When life gets busy, or when you just want to feel like royalty and have someone do it for you, there's Instacart. Get $10 off your first order when you sign up at workingconversations.com forward slash Instacart. Now, back to the show. We're back with a step-by-step instructions so that you can tell your career story in the most compelling way possible. Step one, start with the backstory, something about your upbringing, you know, high school, college, your hometown, like my, my story about why communication at the dinner table. Now, you may or may not include this part depending on your circumstances. When I was that server at the Pizzeria Uno in Boston, well, it was really helpful for me to tell a little bit about my background then. The manager who hired me really valued the Midwestern work ethic, so that was instrumental in me getting hired. Now, of course, I was young and I didn't have a lot of a story to tell, so that was really important back then. Now, I probably wouldn't pull that story out right now unless an organization that was, let's say, a chain of restaurants was looking to hire me for something, in which case that would be really valuable for me me to, to bring out. Several decades later, you know, I rarely use that, but it's at the ready if I need it. Step two, tell your launch story, and there may be several versions of it. I have three versions of my launch story, like my first job story. So the Pizzeria Uno story where I was a trainer. Now that can get technically left off because I was in college and I started off just being a server. Now I eventually got promoted to be one of the trainers on the team in our restaurant because we did hire a lot of new employees, but it's not entirely relevant and probably not something I'm going to put on my resume. Now the next first job I had was at the Boston Phoenix, again, where I was that sales assistant for the personals page. Now, I can bring that story to bear or that piece of my career to bear on my career story if it makes sense to do so. Again, as you recall, I was at that job for less than a year, so I don't feel like I'm being insincere if I leave that part out and start just with that high-tech startup with the telecom systems for hospitals where I was a trainer. And in fact, I moved into my first people management role in that job. So in many cases, that's the best place to start. But have a launch story. Tell the story of how your career started. Again, remember that there might be several different versions of it depending on the circumstances that you find yourself in. That's what helps you decide which one of those versions you use. Step three, include any of the most dramatic or interesting moments that move the story forward. These are probably your career inflection points. How you knew you outgrew one role and were ready for the next or something like that. And you should have a few of these and choose which ones to use based on the circumstances. You heard a number of mine 
in my career story that I shared with you, you heard that when I was working for the telecom startup company that was venture capital funded, you heard me talk about the leadership styles. You heard me talk about usability and user interface design based on customer feedback that I got when I was out in the field. You heard about my decision to go to grad school. You heard about me writing my dissertation on virtual teams before that was even much of a thing. You heard me talk about taking a job at the University of Minnesota. You heard about that specific inflection point when the other professor couldn't go abroad and I needed to recast that idea and take it forward myself. And one of the most critical ones, super critical for what I'm doing now, is when I was teaching those one-off workshops while I was at the University of Minnesota. So that piece is almost always included in my story these days. Now, discernment is really important here. So it's helpful when I am talking to a client that's, say, a multinational or global organization that I talk about not only my study abroad course experience, but how that led to me leading a team at Thomson Reuters that worked on global products. So again, if I'm talking to an organization that is multinational or global and I want them to hire me, I'm absolutely going to talk about that part. On the other hand, if I am talking to a startup company and I work with a fair number of startups doing leadership development and training, um, my time at, at a startup doing that software development piece, doing that uh, user interface design is absolutely critical. Likewise, I have some companies, some companies in my pro- portfolio that are software development companies, and me learning user experience design early on and then leading a team of people doing that at Thomson Reuters is huge. And so I'm going to absolutely play that piece of my story up when I'm talking with them. And when I'm talking to folks in human resources, because many times they're hiring me to do leadership development or some other type of work in their organization, then, you know, my coaching certificate and being an executive coach for part of my journey is a really important part that comes to bear on that kind of work. So again, using discernment and really thinking critically about which pieces to, t- to tell at all and which pieces to really play up absolutely makes a difference. So for example, if my audience is software developers, I'm absolutely going to tell them about the user interface and the usability part of my work at that telecom startup. But if my audience is hiring me to work with somebody on their senior leadership team, I'm going to tell them more about the revolving door part and watching all the different leadership styles come through the organization. And I'm going to talk less, if at all, about the usability part. So depending on my audience and my purpose, I'm going to choose which details to really enhance because it's going to position me differently. Now, in the case of that startup company, that made telecom products for hospitals, both ideas are true. You know, telling the leadership story and the the venture capitalists watching and bringing in new leadership, that's absolutely true. That's just as true as me working on the user interface of of the product there. Both are true. And I'm going to finesse which details to leave in and which details to leave out based on my purpose and my audience. And you need to do the exact same thing. You need to be clearly focused on What is your purpose in communicating your career story and who is the audience that you're sharing it with? And based on those two things, you're going to include certain inflection points or dramatic or interesting moments and leave out other ones. Now, if I knew you to be a college football fan, I would add that when I was um, in grad school at Purdue working on my PhD and back in the Big Ten after having lived in Boston for a long time, I had a running bet with my dad on the Purdue Boilermakers versus the Minnesota Gophers in the football game every fall. 
Again, depending on who I knew you to be as a football fan, I might also tell you that Drew Brees was the quarterback for the Boilermakers back then. Now, if I know you to be a Minnesotan or someone who loves lakes and or fishing, I would also tell you that the wager that my dad and I had on the bet was a fish dinner. And whoever lost was supposed to catch the fish and cook the dinner for the other person. But because I lived nowhere near a lake during my time in Indiana, my dad always caught the fish and cooked the fish no matter who won. All right, step four, the resolution. Make sure that your dramatic and interesting moments, those career inflection points, all lead us to where you are now and that your story hangs together and it exactly makes sense. It might conclude with something like, so that's why I love my work so very much right now. Or, so that's why I'm looking for a new opportunity. Or, and so that's why I plan to retire soon. Or, so that's why I'm ready for this promotion. You see, all of these pieces that you tell during the story, the backstory as the plot develops, those those interesting inflection points, and all of the details are going to lead to this exact moment. Now, let me do a quick recap of those four steps. Step one, start with the backstory. Step two, tell the launch story. How did your career start? Step three, include any dramatic or interesting moments, those specific career inflection points that move the story forward. And step four, have a resolution. Bring all of that information to a specific end point. All right, there you have it, the four steps to tell your career story. I really want you to take charge of your career story. And hey, if you've got an interesting career story that you think would be fun to have featured on this podcast and that other people could learn from, drop me a line and we'll see about bringing you on as a guest in a future episode when we come back and revisit this topic. Again, take charge of your career story, craft it, tell it powerfully, be the hero of your own story. That's what I wish for you, my friend, that you can tell a powerful story that makes total sense about why you are exactly where you are in your career right now. It is all by design. Take good care. Bye for now. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you're hearing on the podcast, head on over to Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts and give us five stars and a quick review. It really makes a difference and it keeps us bringing you valuable content that you can put into play in your life. I'm Dr. Janelle Anderson, and this is Working Conversations.